All right. Well, this morning we're going to be continuing our study through Paul's letter to Philemon. It's a little teeny tiny book. And if you're joining us this morning for the first time, either here in person or online, uh, Philemon is one of those books that's hard to find in your Bible. If you're one of those folks like me, you take your thumb and just kind of look until you find it, you probably won't find Philemon. Uh, You probably want to find the book of Hebrews and then work backwards to find Philemon because it's just a little, almost like a paragraph of a book. It's very small. And this morning, we're going to be spending time in really what is the meat of this letter, or we might even call it a postcard. It's so brief. Um, But from verses 8 through 20, Paul kind of does this thing that all polite people do. You know how really good communicators at work or something, when they have something difficult they want to say to you, they do the sandwich method, where they kind of come in and they start by praising you and talking about all the things they appreciate about you. And then they segue into the difficult, tense thing that they want to talk about. And then they make their exit gracefully by going back to all the things that they love about you. (laughs) And this is how that they broach difficult things. And this is essentially how Paul structures his letter to Philemon. I don't think he's trying to manipulate Philemon. I just think he is starting with a place of, I love you. This is what I like about you. And then here's the difficult thing we need to talk about. And then he closes by saying, and remember, I love you. (laughs) Essentially, this is kind of how it breaks down. Uh, But here we're going to be spending time in that middle part of the letter, which has to do with the thorny, sticky situation that Paul wants to address. Beginning at verse 8. Accordingly, though I am bold enough in Christ to command you to do what is required... Yet for love's sake, I prefer to appeal to you. I, Paul, an old man, and now a prisoner also for Christ Jesus, I appeal to you for my child Onesimus, whose father I became in my imprisonment. Formerly, he was useless to you, but now he is indeed useful to you and to me. I am sending him back to you, sending my very heart. I would have been glad to keep him with me in order that he might serve me on your behalf during my imprisonment for the gospel. But I prefer to do nothing without your consent in order that your goodness might not be by compulsion, but of your own accord. For this perhaps is why he was parted from you for a while that you might have him back forever, no longer as a bondservant, but more than a bondservant as a beloved brother." especially to me, but how much more to you, both in the flesh and in the Lord. So if you consider me your partner, receive him as you would receive me. If he has wronged you at all or owes you anything, charge that to my account. I, Paul, write this with my own hand. I will repay it. To say nothing of your owing me, even your own self. Yes, brother, I want some benefit from you in the Lord. Refresh my heart in Christ." Uh, as I was preparing for this morning's message, um, I, out of curiosity, I, 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 keep, I kept, what I want to talk about this morning is how to resolve conflict within the family of God. And as I did that, I became aware that I've preached on this multiple times already at State Road. <laughs> I went back over the body of my preaching, and we've talked a lot in the short time I've been here about unity and peace and conflict. 
And I think if somebody had no knowledge of me or you as a church, all they had was the body of preaching that played out over the last four years, they would either have to conclude that I was a very melodramatic kind of person <laughs> or that State Road was just this group of contentious, fractious people always tipping towards some conflict or another. That wouldn't be a fair description of you, church family, at all. Maybe I'm melodramatic. I don't know. <laughs> I'll let you decide that. Um, however, I would just say this. Uh, if this is something that your pastor, Josh Tate, tends to harp on or revisit, it is not because I think that you're a particularly difficult or conflict-prone people. I really don't think that. I think it's, if there's any reason why this is something I tend to visit a lot is because we have to be aware that we face an enemy that is real. And he is organized. He is not ignorant of State Road's existence. And if we take seriously what plays out in the Bible, he's also predictable in what he's going to try to do here and what he tries to do everywhere where God's people gather, which is to sow division. He's going to do it. And just like if you go to um, Lowe's in September, you go in there, you're going to see all kinds of winter supplies when it's not even winter yet. They're going to have snow blowers lined up out front and snow shovels inside and the little rod doohickey things that you put for the snow plow. I don't even know what that's called. I moved here from Florida. <laughs> but they're going to have all that winter stuff in Lowe's because they know it's coming, not because it's here. And the worst time to talk about how we should do conflict is when we're in the midst of one. You might have to start the conversation then. It's not inappropriate. It's just less effective. Because really, my sense is right now, the church is pretty calm. I think we're all, for the most part, getting along. <laughs> things are good. Like any family, we've got our issues. We've got things we're talking about and some of those are difficult maybe, but on the main, in the main, I think we're together. We're in harness. We're, we have the same goals, the same desires. We're pushing for it. So this is a great time to talk about conflict. It's a great time to develop sort of a $5 term, a theology of conflict. Uh, in this, I want us to see this. In his letter to Philemon, Paul is not motivated, I don't think, by interpersonal concerns. In other words, I don't think he's really primarily, I think this is not absent in his letter. I think he's writing with real feeling to people that he loves, and he has an interest in their relationship. I think that all that's there, but I think the primary concern that Paul has has to do with the function and power and witness of the church that meets in Philemon's home. I'll show you why I think this in a moment. But let me point out to you two things that Jesus said that will demonstrate what I mean when I say that, that Paul, in writing this letter to Philemon, is fighting for the function and the power and the witness of this church. In John 13, 34 through 35, Jesus says this, a new commandment, this is on the night before he was, this is the night he was betrayed. This is really his last parting instructions to his disciples before he goes to the cross. 
He said, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. And then he says this, by this, all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. By this, they will know, if you have love for one another. We started our study through Philemon talking about how love is the governing ethic for Christians, that this is what governs our conduct together. And he says, by this people will know that you truly are my followers, my disciples. And then later in that same conversation in John 17, actually he's not talking to the disciples at this point, he's talking to Jesus, apparently within the hearing of some. He's he's talking to God the Father in prayer. This is part of the high priestly prayer. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they, will, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us. And then he says this, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. These are two really powerful statements. Jesus ties uh, people's recognition of us as true followers of Jesus to our love for one another. And he says that the main apologetic for the faith is wrapped up in our unity so that the world may believe that you've sent me. Now, those land pretty heavy on my ears as we take up this topic this morning. And I believe that this is part of the motive of what, why Paul put pen to paper, the reason why he has to enter into this. And the reason I think that motivates him in writing to Philemon is that the function and the power and the witness of this church is at stake because one of the leaders of the church, maybe even the primary leader of this church, we're told that the church met in his home, is locked in a conflict. Love and unity are at stake here. So their efforts in this church to proclaim the gospel out on the streets is going to be predicated on certain gospel realities first being lived out among them in sincerity. How can we, State Road, how can we preach being reconciled with God while remain being unconcerned about our estrangement from one another? How can we preach being at peace with God if we are at war with one another? An unholy church has nothing to say to an unholy culture. Paul writes what he does to Philemon so that the world might believe. And because by Philemon's response, people would recognize him as a sincere, from-the-heart imitator of Jesus. Paul wants Jesus to shine and to be glorified in this relationship between Philemon and Onesimus. And this is not the only place in the Bible where Paul lovingly confronts a brother explicitly for the sake of the gospel. In Galatians 2, this is kind of a famous example, we read about this, but when Cephas, that's Peter, came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles. But when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. And then verse 14 is the key verse here, for at least for what we're talking about right now. 
Paul says this, but when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, when I saw that the way they were behaving and living in relation to others was misrepresenting the gospel, it was out of step, I said to Cephas before everybody, if you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? Without getting into the the main part of what this disagreement about, this particular conflict in that passage, what I just want us to see is that it was for the sake of the gospel that he spoke up. This is the pattern with Paul, and I believe this is why he's writing this letter. And this brings us to an important point. I really do think there is some part of us that feels that if we do church right, we won't have conflict. (laughs) If I just operated perfectly as pastor, it wouldn't happen here. But it seems to me that a biblical approach to conflict is not marked by an absence of confrontation, but by the necessity of confronting in love and fostering the ability to disagree without being disagreeable. Uh, This is a trick, I think, that's really hard for me. It's hard for people generally. It's hard for the church. And we're going to talk a little bit about how Paul does it here in this letter this morning. Um, But one thing I think we can say for sure is that conflict is going to happen. The only solution to not having conflict is to have a completely apathetic church that just doesn't care. Uh, We are generally here this morning on a morning with a time change and a snowstorm overnight, and you probably had to get up early to clear your yard because you care. You're people who have a high level of concern about the church, about truth, about the issues that we gather to talk about. And because that, I mean, we are not involved in something that doesn't stir the passions, and we're all very different. And our hope is that God would draw more and more people into our congregation, which means that we'd be drawing in more and more fallen sinners with different expectations and different agendas, which means that we have to get really good about navigating conflict, something which I would be first to say, I need help with. I need to make more progress personally. I certainly don't address you this morning as somebody who thinks, I've got my act together when it comes to conflict. Let's all learn together from Paul and his letter to Philemon. Paul's letter here to his friend is not a class on managing conflict generally. Uh, Don't get me wrong, I think there would be some overlap between the principles that Paul is going to use here to help resolve this particular conflict and other kinds of conflict. But the unique species of conflict that Paul is addressing in Philemon is an inter-family squabble within the church. And that's different uh, than other forms of conflict that you might seek help with. If you have, help, if you have a, a problem with an unbelieving neighbor or a problem with your boss or a problem with the state, I don't think we could take the principles I'm about to lay out and present them to Volodymyr Zelensky and say, this will help you with Putin. I don't know that that would be true. But what Paul is saying in this letter is, you guys are two Christians. This is an interchurch. You guys both agree about the gospel, and he's going to talk to them in that way. Paul addresses Philemon as his brother. In the letter's opening line, he calls a woman named Aphia, most probably Philemon's wife, his sister. 
He says that Onesimus is like his own child and that he became like his father. And throughout this brief letter, we find him employing the language of family, but this is most pointed, I think, in verses 15 through 16. For this, perhaps, is why he was parted from you for a while, that you might have him back forever, no longer as a bondservant, but more than a bondservant, as a beloved brother, especially to me, but how much more to you, both in the flesh and in the Lord." So Paul is basing his approach at resolving this particular conflict on the fact that this is a family affair. He's your brother, Philemon. Philemon and Onesimus both agree about the gospel. This is a foundational truth in their lives that will shape the whole. And so Paul appeals to their shared values and their shared convictions to make his appeal. And we might wonder how Paul's advice would have changed if Onesimus had not yet embraced the gospel. But here's how I suspect it would have changed. Here, his appeal is, Paul's clear desire is that Philemon and Onesimus would image forth in their relationship the truths of the gospel. Uh, In other words, in your relationship, as two Christian men, please be like a showpiece demonstration of the gospel. And then I think, I think if Onesimus was not a Christian, his advice to Philemon would have been similar, but it probably would have been love Onesimus in a way that is a witness to him about the gospel. But really, he's saying to these two men who are locked in conflict together, Um, Please note that there is a higher cause. There is a higher thing to be lived for here. Welcome him back not as a slave, but as a brother. Your relationship is no longer governed by the terms of your contract or whatever. You're now governed by a higher uh, contract, which is love. And so that's how I think it would have changed. Instead of saying to Philemon, please represent Christ well to your unbelieving slave. He says to them both, in your relationship, image forth Christ well. And that's the message to us as a church family this morning. If we find ourselves locked in disagreement, if we find ourselves entering into conflict, how are we going to represent our God well in the midst of substantive disagreement, maybe persistent disagreement? Everything that matters about how Paul seeks to resolve this conflict will hinge on the fact that this is playing out within the family of God. Let's look at how Paul does it. The first thing I want us to see that he does is he starts with prayer, and he ends with prayer. And Andrew talked about this when he, um, when he preached a few weeks ago. Paul begins and ends the letter with prayer, and as it relates to conflict, Paul is demonstrating for us the importance of prayer in the midst of conflict. Uh, It's just true that really God has to carry the heavy lifting of changing hearts and minds. Um, We can be very persuasive, we can talk, we can do all kinds of things, but unless God does a movement in the heart, uh, it's going to be difficult uh, to move things very much. And so Paul, knowing that believing something that can be done without prayer is the same as thinking it can be done without God. Before he ever talks to Philemon, he's been talking to God about Philemon and about this current conflict and about Onesimus. As humans, we are really limited in our capacity to effect change in our relationships. Uh, Even if you're a very good talker, 
and you're very smooth and you're very persuasive, you just can't move a person to agreement, can you? Especially today, I personally despair. I've gotten more optimistic the longer I've been away from Facebook. (laughs) But when you go on Facebook, don't you just despair of ever changing a person's mind about anything? Hard to imagine. But Paul enters into this with a lot of hope, and he makes his appeal with hope, and he, he really rests everything on prayer. Unless God empowers the change, we may as well just um, be talking ourselves blue in the face. So that's the first thing I want us to see, is if you find yourself in conflict with a believer, uh, one of the first questions that we should ask is, um, because here's what I do, I tend to, when I find myself angry about something, uh, maybe you guys do this too, I rehearse conversations I'd like to have. Do you guys do that? (laughs) Do you guys do that? Where, oh man, I should have said this, and then you replay it in your mind, and you always come, I always come out great in that moment. For for some reason, when I actually find myself in an actual conflict, my voice cracks, I can't seem to find words, my mind spins but won't get traction. I always imagine what I should have said on the car ride home. Are you that way? So then for days, I just replay the conversation in the way I wish it had gone. Instead of spending time imagining conversations, I should be drawn into conversation with God. And I should be allowing God's Word to speak to me. Uh, very often, I need to be confronted by handling things well, or new ways of looking at people or circumstances. I need to pray for the humility, not to get locked in my own narrative all the time. And I just need a lot of help from God to help me with conflict. So very important that we be talking to God instead of just muttering to ourselves, and certainly before we try to talk to the person that we're involved with conflict with. Here's something else I want us to see. So we've talked about prayer. The next thing to see is gentleness and humility in what Paul does here. Uh, Proverbs 15.1 says, A gentle answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger. Uh, It's just true that you cannot put toothpaste back in the tube. James 3 is all about the dangers of the tongue and how once once that torpedo's in the water, you can't recall it. Be very careful to speak for sure. And Paul is very careful. Uh, One of the things I think that's kind of cool about Philemon, and I don't think this is a directive or anything, but it's written down. Uh, I don't know if you've ever tried to write what you might say to somebody before you say it, Um, but writing is like a mechanical form of thinking. I think very often we're far more careful with our words when they're written down than we just speak them in a spontaneous moment. And I don't, I don't think we can come away from Philemon saying this is something that Christians should do or have to do. Maybe you're just better on your feet. I don't know. But one thing for sure is it's not a bad idea. Uh, Paul is very careful in his words when care with words is called for. And that maybe in part that's because he's writing and not just talking. But here we see a a pronounced, a pervasive spirit of gentleness and humility in what Paul is saying. Gentleness, of course, is one of the fruits of the Spirit found in Galatians 5. 
But it's also a word that Jesus used to describe the spirit with which he came proclaiming the good news of the gospel. In Matthew 11, he says, Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. So when we talk about the gospel shaping the way we live with one another, living the gospel, let's note that Jesus came to us in a gentle way not in a coercive way, an abusive way, a way that compels. So as a showpiece demonstration of how to live the gospel, it's not surprising that there is a pervasive gentleness throughout the letter that Paul writes to Philemon. Paul never strays into language that is coercive or abusive. In the Bible, gentleness is a posture necessary to walk worthy of our calling. We're told that in Ephesians 4, Titus 3, 1 Peter 3. It needs to be present when correcting a brother or sister who is straying in sin. Galatians 6 tells us that. It's the indicator of true wisdom, James 3. It's the mark of good ministry, 1 Thessalonians 2, and good pastors. Don't judge me, 1 Timothy 3. Paul says to Philemon that he could, as an apostle, command Philemon to do what is right. But wouldn't this be a jarring and frankly kind of an unhealthy dynamic to exist within a family? Is this how I relate to my wife? Is this how my wife relates to me? Is this the way that we lead our children? Is this the way that you behave towards cousins or nephews? It's do we have this way of relating to one another in a family that is about command? You will do, because I say. It would be kind of out of place, or at least over a long season. That would get old in a hurry, wouldn't it? These two men are in a family together, and they hold a shared view of the gospel. By the way, when I talk about family here, um, when we talk about our our earthly families, we're talking about um, a legal relationship as well as shared family relationships. We share a roof either through adoption or through biology. We are now in a family in a permanent kind of way. When we talk about a family in the church, we're talking about a spiritual likeness. We're talking about sharing not a same last name, but a same spirit, a same agreed-upon foundation in the truth of the gospel. And that's what these two men, Philemon and Onesimus, have. So just like a person might seek a surface that's flat and firm to fold a piece of laundry, Paul sets this matter to right by setting it on the gospel. So Paul gently appeals to Philemon on the basis of their shared values. Yet for love's sake, I prefer to appeal to you. This shouldn't be the way that our family culture is. It shouldn't be the way that we relate to one another in conflict. I don't want to pull rank I want you to do what's needed because we share a spiritual likeness. We're governed by love. But I preferred to do nothing without your consent in order that your goodness might not be by compulsion, but of your own accord. You see what Paul is doing here. He's again fighting for the function and the power and the witness of this church. He's saying, Philemon, I could make you do what's needed. But in order for your witness to remain intact, you have to want it. 
You have to love what is right and good. You have to do it because that's altogether right. Paul had great authority as an apostle, but as Jesus taught, Paul did not believe that a leader should lord it over his flock. Do you remember when Jesus said this to his disciples, Luke 22 through 25? He says, oh, the kings of the Gentiles, they lord it over their people. They behave like tyrants. This isn't how leaders should be in, in the church. Rather, he sought, Paul seeks to resolve problems in the gentlest way possible. Like a good parent, he did not want to provoke his children to wrath. Rather, he wanted to teach them by word and example to how to love the ways of God from the heart. And loving God from the heart involves an obedience response, obedient response from the heart. It was important for Paul to cultivate a heart obedience in his friends, as opposed to a begrudging, dutiful one. Because one is worship and the other is something else. Closely related to gentleness is humility. I think so much of conflict is rooted in a lack of humility. What is humility? Well, it's humility finds its expression in an other's focus. Uh, and, and so much of conflict is rooted in a me focus. Uh, at least this has been my experience. I kind of get locked into my idea of how it ought to go, and oh, they're so, you know. But then humility is really quite required in, among God's people to navigate conflict well. In his letter to the Philippian church, Paul wrote, Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility consider others better than yourselves. Each of you should look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. This last line is the very stuff of humility, and it's a, it works powerfully in the midst of a conflict. Each of you should look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. Again, it's worth noting here that I'm not suggesting that humility is an antidote to conflict. I am just saying that it's the fix to our poor motivations in conflict. Uh, Could a genuine concern for others motivate us to confront? Yes. Humility might be the entry point to conflict. It's not that conflict is bad. Conflict is normative. It's that humility guides us in the way we enter into it and seek to resolve it. And so Paul is not saying, you guys need to be pacifists or anything like that. He's not saying, please just chill out and be mellow all the time. He is saying, be gentle when you do confront, because it is necessary to confront, and let your confrontation be soaked in a humility that's others-focused. Humility was modeled for us by Jesus when, in the words of Philippians 2, he says this, "'Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross.'" When we step back and look at what's happening in Philemon from the uh, aerial view, the big view, um, Paul is saying to Philemon, who is a slave master, receiving home a runaway slave, receive him back as a brother, not as a slave. 
Be like Jesus, who made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant. Philemon, I am asking you to do nothing less than to put yourself in a position of service to your slave. Wow. Guys, that's radically different than the surrounding culture at that time. And again, what what the Bible calls us to do as a people within a people is that the relationships here must look different than the relationships in the surrounding culture. And he's saying to Philemon, I know what the Roman system says you're within your rights to do, but Jesus' example is what governs you now. You're a brother to Onesimus, and I am uh, telling you that the right and good way to enter into this is to put yourself in a position of service, to consider your slave more important than yourself. That's a hard word. That's a tough word, but a necessary word. Jesus said in Luke twenty-two twenty-six, let the greatest among you become as the youngest and the leader as the one who serves. Philemon, this church that meets in your house, what's it going to look like? Is it going to look like Jesus or like Philemon? <laughs> uh, the, the best way to get there is Philemon for you to look like Jesus in your efforts to lead that church. Let the greatest among you be a servant of all. And at every opportunity, and almost too many scriptures to count, we're encouraged as God's special people to follow His example in humility. Jesus' example for us consists basically in this. He laid aside His privileges and lowered Himself. Our eternal, pre-existent Creator God became like one of us. He became a man so that we might become sons of God. He came into the world so that we might be delivered out of it. And he became a servant to all that we might become co-heirs with him in glory. And so much of conflict in the history of the church is rooted in the opposite of that spirit. However, here in this letter to Philemon, Paul approaches this conflict with a distinct air of humility. He does not pull rank. He encourages Philemon to think of himself as a slave and to think of Onesimus as a brother, and this mirrors the humility of Jesus in the gospel, who became in very nature a servant so that we could become his brothers and sisters. Uh, a brief point here uh, in, in point C, it has to do with accountability. I don't know if, if you guys noticed this, but in verse 2, when Paul first begins his letter... He addresses the letter to Philemon, our beloved fellow worker, and Aphia, our sister, and Archippus, our fellow soldier, and the church in your house. Uh, when I read Philemon, it, re- it almost feels a little voyeuristic. It feels like it's, uh, I'm reading somebody's private correspondence, like Paul wrote it just to Philemon. But here in, in this verse, verse 2, he makes it plain that this is a letter to the entire church. Uh, like all the churches in the, uh, like all the letters in the early church, uh, especially in a day where many people who would have first received the letter were illiterate, the way that this would have been broadly distributed to everyone was read aloud in the presence of all. Imagine Onesimus and Philemon sitting there as this letter was read in front of everybody. Think if you had, were locked in a disagreement with your employer or your employee, 
and you're both Christians, and we received a letter from Dave Ross, <laughs> a former pastor here at State Road. And he wanted the letter read out loud to everybody. And the main body of the letter was about the disagreement between you and your employee or your employer. We would all sit here in awkward silence, wouldn't we? But that's how this played out. That's how this happened. What is Paul's plan? Why is this not handled privately? It's an interesting question. It's not one I think that gets a lot of press, but I think part of the expectation in what Paul is accomplishing is that God's people, the church family, would have a role in holding these two men accountable to what was right and good. I think Paul uh, knew that I had great expectations for how Philemon would respond, but how would this play out a year afterwards? This is not just a private thing, and again, this is not... What, what this is about primarily to Paul is the function and the power and the witness of this church. This is part of a, a team effort. And team, you have a part to play <laughs> in holding one another accountable when we find ourselves in conflict, as we inevitably will. Uh, Francis Chan, I heard him speak one time, and he's a lifelong Lakers fan. He loves the Lakers. And back when um, Shaquille O'Neal and who was the other guy? Was it Kobe Bryant? They were playing on the same team for the Lakers. I'm not much of a basketball fan. But they were having some interpersonal squabbles, and it was affecting on-court performance, whoever Shaquille O'Neal was playing with. And Francis Chan used that as an analogy in his sermon. He said, you know, I don't really care if they like getting ice cream together after the games <laughs> and that they go on vacation together and things, but I want them to play together on the court. They have, it's for the team effort that I want them to get together. And I don't think Paul would say that exactly. I think he cares about Onesimus and Philemon on a personal level. He wants this to be right and whole. But I'm saying that the primary concern here is that they play together as a team. And so he's addressing the whole team. This is not a private thing. The church has to work together to represent God well. And so he, oh, it's an open letter to the entire church. Uh, the last thing I want us to see here in closing is this. Um, and I've talked about this again, having talked about conflict a lot. I find it really hard to talk about conflict in the church without talking about this principle, which I took a class in my Masters of Divinity class, and Professor Buchswagler, that was her last name, taught managing conflict in the church, and she presented me with an idea that I had never thought of before, but has completely changed the way I look at all conflict in the church. She said that... Every conflict, and I know many of you have heard this from me multiple times, forgive me, uh, but I, I believe that the enemy is also repetitious in his attempts to divide us. So you can forgive me for being repetitious on a core idea that should govern how we look at conflict within the church. Every conflict in the history of man, whether it's two nations going to war, uh, whether it's uh, a fight between husband and wife or factions within a church... Every conflict that ever was boils down to two basic ingredients. You need two things for conflict, a relationship and an issue, 
or relationships and in issues, plural. And you can see how people respond to conflict based on which they weigh more heavily, which is more important to them. Some people, for example, when they start entering into conflict, they value harmony in relationships way more than winning on the issues. These people exist. And what happens is when things get tense, when it starts reaching a point of high passions, they back off on the issue. They will sell the farm to maintain relational harmony. Other people uh, value the issue higher. And for these people, uh, they're not just jerks. I think they tend to get a bad rap. The reason why they're that way is because they really value integrity very highly. And they think that it would be dishonest or untrue for them to abandon principle for the sake of harmony. And so when things get really tense and it gets to a point where the conflict is reaching this critical place, they feel like in order to be a person of integrity and honesty, I can't just abandon my position. And what this works out in practice is very often they will ride roughshod over people because they value the issue so highly. Both of these are lopsided approaches to conflict. It would be wrong equally to say, I think people generally get high marks in people's estimation if in the middle of conflict they abandon principle just to maintain harmony. They seem like they're easy folks to get along with. They seem like they're good. But that's wrong and it's bad. Uh, It's also wrong to value issues over relationships. What do we do? There's a group of people who decide, I won't care about either. (laughs) They don't value either particularly highly. And so they just, these are people who come to church. They say, oh, this is great. I love the worship. Pastor Josh seems nice. And then the first time something ugly happens, they're gone. And you realize all of a sudden, they really didn't care about me or the issues. They're just going somewhere else. Other people, though, um, they'll, they value the relationships so much that they're afraid to rock the boat. They have opinions. They think things are right, but they're not pushing for them because they fear that it'll create disharmony. Or they care so much about the issues, they don't care what it happens to people. They have to push this thing through to the point of purity and, 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 and honesty and integrity They have to win on the issue. There is a fourth way. There is. You don't have to only care about one or the other. You don't have to proceed not caring about either. And the way that we should approach conflict in the church is by holding the issue and the relationship as equally important. Very hard to do. But this is how our Lord dealt with us in the gospel. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whosoever puts their faith in them might have eternal life. You see, in the conflict between God and man, there was a relationship. He's a loving God. He's the creator. We are his creatures. And there's an issue that arose, isn't there? There's the issue of our sin. 
And so there we come to the gospel. How is God going to deal with this conflict? If he values relationship with us more highly than the issue of sin, what would have happened? God would have said, it's okay, it's okay. Let's just sweep all that under the rug, just come home. You can be broken and still be with me. That's okay. Or if it was a completely issues-driven God, he could have said, let's just wipe out all of humanity and I'll start over. You guys can all be damned. That's not a swear word, that's the real term. You can all be sit under judgment and wrath, damnation. And that's how he could have proceeded. But he didn't do that. You see, he held the relationship and the issue as equally important, and that brings us to the cross. Because on the cross, we see the only way that God could deal with the issue of sin while also holding the relationship we had with him as equally important. And Paul does something very similar here. In verse 18, he writes this to Philemon, speaking about Onesimus. If he has wronged you at all or owes you anything, charge that to my account. Guys, that's the gospel in a nutshell. (laughs) Everything we owed to God the Father was charged to the account of who? Jesus. Jesus paid it all, right? All to him I owe. This verse 18 is the gospel in a nutshell. Paul does not say, whatever happened, just forget about it. Sweep it under the rug. Bygones be bygones. Don't bring it up. Just welcome him home like nothing ever happened. He says, charge it to my account. And I think here we, Paul is, is modeling for us a more excellent way than most of us tend to enter into conflict. Paul does not value the relationships higher than the issues. He does not value the issues higher than the relationships. He holds them both together at once. And that's the way we're called to represent the gospel well in our own conflicts. Now, that is way easier to say than to do. Uh, But that's why we have these conversations a lot, to keep these things at the front of our minds. And so as we enter in, if you find yourself this morning in a conflict or tempted to enter into a conflict, whatever's brewing within uh, the, the church today, one, have you prayed about it? Uh, Maybe you've been driving in your car having imaginary conversations (laughs) with Pastor Josh, things you'd like to say to me, boy, if you could get me alone sometime. I don't know. But are you talking to God about it? Second, in in the way that you're approaching it, maybe even try to write it down. But is there a marked spirit of gentleness and humility Is this just something that I'm... Are you looking not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others? Is the approach marked by gentleness? Is there a loving concern for the person that you're talking to? And uh, do other people in the church know about it? Uh, Is this something where there needs to be accountability, a widening of the conversation? And lastly... 
are you in this conflict valuing one higher than the other? Are you not moving on the issue because you don't want to mess up the relationship? Or are you moving on the issue in a way that is injuring people and leaving a wake of brokenness behind you? There is a more excellent way. I'm not sure I've often managed to hit it, um, but this is the thing that we should be aspiring towards as God's people and that I want to arrive at as well. Let's pray. Uh, Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord, for the way you have spoken to us this morning here through Philemon. And God, throughout our time in, in the letter to Philemon, you have uh, been speaking to us, Lord, about what it means, what it looks like to live out the gospel. And Father, uh, we often fall short of what we see in Philemon. At least I feel that way. And so, Father, we invite you by your Holy Spirit to grow us in love for one another. Father, I pray, Lord, that we would pray for one another. And, and Lord, I, I pray, Lord, that you would, if there is brokenness from past wrongs, as we talked about last week, God, that we would pursue reconciliation with generosity. And Father, in the midst of conflict, maybe in this uh, season that we're currently enjoying, God, be preparing us for what will inevitably come. Father, we, uh, we know that there is a real enemy who would love to divide us. And God, we know because you've said in your word that a part of our combined witness before an unbelieving, skeptical world is that we love one another and that we remain unified even in the midst of substantive disagreement. God, help us to disagree well. Uh, help us, Lord, to relate to one another, especially in those times with gentleness and humility. Help us, Lord, to um, hold on to our opinions and to champion them, knowing, Lord, that each voice here is needed in the conversation, but to do that in a way, God, that also values the people that we're in conflict with or in conversation with. Uh, Father, I just pray, Lord, that somehow, supernaturally, you would give us the ability to land in that fourth way and to operate in that way as a church family. God, we invite you in these calm days to prepare us for whatever is coming, and we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.